The text for today's sermon once again comes from Romans chapter 13, and we continue with a look at the Avengers. Part two, the Avengers, we are considering God's Avengers, and we will look at Romans 13 verse 4 to get us started. And there we read, For it, or he, referring to the civil ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So to recap from last week, as we started this look at the avengers, we talked about several things, including the fact that the civil ruler is required to obey God. All people are required to obey God, and that includes the civil ruler. We talked about the fact that there's not one requirement for Christians and another requirement for non-Christians. All people are required to obey Jesus and follow God's law. And I would remind you, as we looked at last week in the 1689 Confession, that speaking of the law of God, the confession says the moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. So the confession reminds us that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, of which I argue the civil code in the Old Testament is an application of the moral law. When we look at what the penalty should be for breaking the moral law, theft, murder, adultery, kidnapping, which is a form of theft. The moral law doth forever bind all. That means all people at all times in all places are bound or required to follow God's law, whether they're justified i.e. Christians, or whether they're not justified, not Christians. Every person is required to obey God's law. And it says not only in regard to the matter contained in it that is just and right, and all people should follow this, but also in respect to the authority of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. So since God gave this law, and since God is creator of all people, all people are required to obey God's law whether they are Christian or not. And as an example to help us understand this concept that all people are required to obey God's law, including civil rulers or the avengers, as they're called in Romans 13, verse 4, we could consider an example of interacting with a non-Christian who is perhaps in what is very clearly uh, sin. We could think of someone engaged in homosexual activity, or we could think of someone engaged in a heterosexual sin. Um, Can living in a relationship with someone, an intimate relationship outside of marriage. Whatever the the sin we could think of, we would not go to that person, or at least we should not go to that person and say, well, since you're not a Christian, since you don't submit to Christ, you don't have to follow God's law. You're not required to follow God's standards for marriage. You're not required to follow God's standards for relationship between men and women. We should never say that to a non-Christian. We should never say, well, since you're not a believer, God doesn't require you to live according to his word, to live according to his law word. The same thing applies in the civil realm. Just as we should never go to a quote-unquote pagan person and say, well, God doesn't require you to follow his law, 
since you reject his law, we should never go to a civil ruler, whether in person, interacting, or even in our thought as we think through this, and we should never say or think, well, since you're a pagan civil ruler, since you're a non-Christian, God doesn't require you to follow his moral law as it relates to your calling. You see, all people are commanded to obey Jesus and follow God's law. Whether you claim to be a Christian, whether you claim to be an atheist, whether you are part of a Christian community or not, the moral law doth forever bind all, doth forever bind all, as well as justified persons as others. So, we won't spend too much time on that today, but I wanted to give you a recap to remind you that when we speak of the, ro- the role of the avengers, the civil rulers of enforcing God's law, they are in fact required to obey it themselves and enforce it. As we continue to look at this uh, theme of the avengers of God, it's an exciting thing because what we're doing is we're applying the Bible to all of life. Christianity is very exciting. It's very um, there's just so many interesting ways that the Bible applies. And one of the sad things that has happened in, at least in, in our day in the church in America, is that the Bible and Christian worldview has been reduced to a very small area of life. And when you begin to understand that the word of God <clears throat> touches everything in life, it becomes very exciting to study scripture because it is so wise and so just and so righteous. So today, uh, In our brief time together, we're going to focus on the role and the reason for the avengers of God, the role and the reason of the civil ruler. So last week we talked about, we made three main points. Uh, We talked about the fact that civil rulers are God's avengers tasked with punishing evil according to God's standard. And so we will be kind of covering that theme again just because it's so important. We talked about how God's law was always meant to be followed by civil rulers of all nations, We kind of recapped on that and how civil rulers are, quote unquote, in covenant with God, as are all people in the sense that their obedience is required from him as their creator. So all people are either covenant keepers or covenant breakers in the sense that we are all in a relationship to God in the sense that he is our creator and we are his creatures. And therefore, obedience is required on our part, whether or not we want to acknowledge that relationship or not. So today, because this is important, we will have a bit of an overlap on that first point. But we have a a short message today, and we're going to look at two main points, the role of the civil ruler and the reason for the civil ruler. So number one, the role of the civil ruler, the role of the avenger. So the role, R-O-L-E, what is their job? Okay, what's the job of the civil ruler? And they are tasked with enforcing justice, not implementing social programs or a slew of other things. So the role, the job of the Avenger is to enforce justice. And this is very important. It may seem like a simple thing, but when you look around today and you see the myriad of things that magistrates do, civil rulers do, you realize most of those things are not even about enforcing justice. But that is what the Bible presents as the job of the civil ruler. So if you look at Romans 13, verse 4, you see a key word that I want us to focus on today. It says that as God's servant, which it mentions twice, which I'll remind you that uh, Nero would not have been very pleased to be referred to as the one true God's servant who is tasked with carrying out God's plan. But you see here that it says that 
this servant of God, this avenger, does not carry the what? The sword for no reason or in vain. So the sword is what I want us to think about right now. The sword refers to punishment. It refers to a, a consequence for a sin in society, whether that's a capital punishment or an, an, another punishment. The sword refers to force being used by the civil ruler to punish someone for wrong they have done. It's a very important concept. The civil ruler has a very weighty task. He is granted the authority by God to use the sword to punish someone, even up to including death for certain crimes. That's a very serious uh, responsibility and authority that God gives to the civil ruler, that God gives to his avengers. Now, if you want to turn, we're going to look at this theme here. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11. Ecclesiastes 8.11. You'll see here that the role of the civil ruler in enforcing justice is very important. And when it's not enforced, we'll see what happens here. Ecclesiastes, right, right after the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 11, where we read this. Because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with the desire to commit evil. So listen to that again. And think about our day and the application of God's word to our day. Because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with the desire to commit evil. So the deterrent uh, in the sense of how do we prevent crime in society, the deterrent is swift and just and righteous punishment according to God's law. When that does not happen, what is one of the consequences in society? People grow callous and and, uh, bold, I should say. They grow bold in their evil doing because they realize, if I commit this crime, I'm not going to receive the just penalty for it. I might get a slap on the wrist, right? But I will continue to do evil because the sentence against this evil act is not carried out quickly. In some cases, not carried out at all. So this reminds us, if we think about the role of the civil ruler as one of enforcing justice and making sure that a evil act receives the just penalty, we would be correct in questioning the role that many people say the government should have is, is that of rehabilitation. A lot of people say, well, the role of The prison system and the criminal justice system is to rehabilitate criminals. Well, that's not how the Bible presents the role of the criminal justice system. It is primarily to see that justice is done. It is primarily to uphold God's standards to protect the innocent from evildoers. You see, the prison is not the place for the thief. The thief, as we read when we looked at our Old Testament reading, needs to make restitution because justice needs to be done for the victim that he has wronged. When when an unbiblical system is applied as it is in our day, and someone steals and commits grand theft auto, for example, and steals your car, you 
likely have to pay for that out of your insurance. And the thief then goes to prison on your dime because you are the one with your tax money who is paying for that thief to have a warm place to sleep, to have three meals a day, to be able to watch TV in prison, maybe go out and play in, in the court and lift some weights. Now, I'm not saying prison is a nice place, but it's not the biblical idea of justice. The biblical idea of justice is not rehabilitation. It's not even primarily just to prevent crime. It's to see that justice is done. And as a corollary, when justice is followed out, the heart of man is not fully set to do evil because he knows if I commit this crime, if I murder, if I rape, if I kidnap, the consequences will be swift because I am violating God's law. Now, if the sword is to be wielded by the civil ruler, we must ask the question, as we must ask this question, what should the sword be wielded for? Now, I want to read you a quote from Greg Bonson who says this. And really, before I read that, the, op- the options, as we mentioned last week, are simply this. Does the civil ruler wield the sword according to his idea of who should be punished and what they should be punished for? Or does the civil ruler wield the sword according to God's standard of who should be punished, what that punishment should be, and so forth? So Greg Bonson said this. The civil magistrate cannot function without some ethical guidance, without some standard of good and evil. If that standard is not to be the revealed law of God, then what will it be? In some form or expression, it will have to be the law of man or men, the standard of self-law or autonomy. And when autonomous laws come to govern a commonwealth, the sword is certainly wielded in vain for it represents simply the brute force of some men's will against the will of other men, end quote. What Bonson is saying is this, unless you have that ethical guidance, that standard of good and evil, God's law being that which determines what the sword is used for, the only alternative is man's law, self-law or autonomy. All right, when that happens, the sword then is wielded in vain. And I want to give you an example of this because sometimes the, pre- the way this is presented, in, and I think it's an erroneous view, but I, you know, I respect many people who have this view, but the idea is, well, God has given civil government and, and almost in the sense that they can almost do no wrong. And though people wouldn't say that, logically it follows that if the civil government can kind of rule how they see fit, then there is no standard above them holding them to govern a certain way. So my argument is that the sword is wielded in vain by the civil government when they don't follow God's law. I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. I want to give you an example, an explanation of this. Jeremiah chapter 22. We're going to read here. This is where Jeremiah is preaching to the civil rulers of his day, the kings. And he's preaching and he's going to talk about how the sword is being used, and I want to make some application from this. So let's. Uh, there's many passages like this in the Old Testament where the prophets, especially Jeremiah, are re- preaching against the civil rulers of their day, and they're indicting them for shedding innocent blood, for using the sword in vain, for using the sword in a way that is contrary to, what, to how God has designed it. So Jeremiah chapter 22 Verses 1 through 8, we'll begin. This is what the Lord says. 
Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and announce this word there. You are to say, Hear the word of the Lord, king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you, your officers, and your people who enter these gates. So this is a a message primarily to the king and his officers and then to all people. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. For if you conscientiously carry out this word, then kings sitting on David's throne will enter through the gates of this palace, riding on chariots and horses, they, their officers, and their people. But if you do not obey these words, then I swear by myself, this is the Lord's declaration, that this house will become a ruin. For this is what the Lord says concerning the house of the king of Judah. You are like Gilead to me or the summit of Lebanon, but I will certainly turn you into a wilderness, uninhabited cities. I will set apart destroyers against you, each with his weapons. They will cut down the choicest of your cedars and throw them into the fire. Many nations will pass by this city and ask one another, why did the Lord do such a thing to this great city? They will answer, because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed and worshipped to other gods and served them. Now, the idea here is that Jeremiah is indicting this king and his rulers for shedding innocent blood. That, by, that tells us that if you can shed innocent blood as a civil ruler, you can wield the sword in vain. The, the ruler cannot simply wield the sword according to his fancy or as Bonson said, according to the law of the self-law or the law of autonomy. The civil ruler cannot do that because to do so would be for him to shed innocent blood. If he uses the sword unjustly, if he uses the sword to punish someone for something that God has not allowed him to do, then he is wielding the sword in vain. He is stepping outside of what God has allowed him to do. See, the civil ruler as everyone else, is required to follow God's standard. Once we step outside God's law, we are no longer living righteously. We are now living in sin because sin is a transgression of the law. So the civil ruler cannot wield the sword as he sees fit. To do so would lead to the shedding of innocent blood. If the civil ruler could do no wrong and could simply follow man's law, he could never shed innocent blood because he could say, well, this person committed a crime that in my eyes is worthy of death. And as a civil ruler, God has tasked me with punishing evil according to my standard, and I can therefore use the sword as I see fit. That is not the case. The civil ruler can only wield the sword according to God's standard. Otherwise, he would in fact be wielding it in vain. So the role of the civil ruler is to punish evil, is to enforce justice. Now, I want to give you an example in a brief rabbit trail here of something that the civil government is not to do. If we see the role of civil government of enforcing justice, uh, we will see that there are many things the civil ruler or the avenger of God should not do. And one of those examples is education. Education is not something that the avenger of God, that the civil ruler, that the civil government should be involved in. So when we talk about what we have in our day of the government school system, we're talking about the civil government doing something which it has no right no role to be doing. 
Now, if we make any emotional appeal to how, how, how important it is that the government does this or any anecdotal account of how the government has helped uh, with education, all those things must be subjected to God's word. We know that God can use evil for good, but that should never go into our thought process as to what someone or institution should be doing. People can argue, well, many pagan governments have done a lot of good, and they have, on so, in some occasions, protected the innocent. That may all be well and true. But that doesn't change the fact that all civil rulers are required to obey God's law. And just because a civil government, God may have used them doing something they shouldn't be doing for some good, doesn't mean we should continue to allow them to be involved in education. The Bible makes it clear that the civil government is to punish evildoers. That is their role, not educating our children. As Joel McDermott says, in no place in Scripture is it even intimated, even hinted at, that civil government should have any hand in the education process. Now, again, I'm taking a brief rabbit trail here, but it's important because it's an application of if we know what the role of the civil magistrate is, we know what their role isn't. And the fact that many people find it so difficult to envision a society, an American society, in which the civil government is not in charge of education is proof positive that the government school system has failed to teach the true history of this nation and the principles of freedom found in the Bible that were applied to America. So the fact that most people going to the government schools don't know that the government schools weren't always there shows the government schools aren't really doing a very good job of teaching the history of the nation. So again, I want to quote McDermott here, and he says this, There is no reason why civil government should have education as one of its functions, or even have regulatory oversight of education. In a free society, the primary focus of leadership in education would always and only be the family and secondarily the church and anyone whom the family freely decides to hire. So you can have private education, of course. And this is the ideal of freedom that is found both in the Bible and in the Christian founding of this land and through the founding years of American history up until the 1830s. In fact, he goes on to note that as late as 1860, throughout all the states, there were only about 300 public schools compared to over 6,000 private institutions. And that's not including the vast majority, by the way, who were homeschooled, end quote. So clearly, the idea that we need the government school system is erroneous at best. Not only does God's word give no basis for it in talking about the role of civil government, but our nation wasn't even founded on this practice. They did have some town schools in New England, but many were provided by the church, and thus I would see them as private. And in cases where it was publicly funded, I would disagree with it, and I don't agree with every single thing that was done um, by the, the Puritans that formed New England. Nevertheless, as a whole, the amount of government involvement in education that we have today is foreign to our nation's uh, founding and general principles. For generations before the civil government took over the education system, we had private education in America. And for those who would say, well, that's not going to produce uh, very literate people, I would remind you that that's the system that produced the men who, who penned our nation's founding documents. And whether you agree with them or not, they were certainly not academic slouches by any stretch of the imagination. And now, because we have abandoned the, the standard for God's avengers in Scripture, the standard for the civil government in Scripture, we are paying with our tax dollars for a massive anti-Christian education system, which is not only um, 
leading to more and more debt, but it's creating a society that doesn't understand the role of, a, of government, that doesn't understand the role of the civil magistrate. So it's a vicious cycle because we are continuing to um, pour money into the system that abandons God's, wor- abandons God's word and teaches the fa- a false view of civil government, that the civil government exists as big brother to take care of us, to educate our children, to provide us with what we need, as opposed to what the Bible teaches. The civil ruler is an avenger of God who is forced, who is tasked with punishing evil according to God's standard. So we can uh, de- delegitimize this system and bring about private Christ-honoring education if we um, begin by taking our children out of the government school system. But part of the problem is that the Christian church has done precious little teaching on the role of government, on the role of the avengers of God, which is why we are doing this now. And that's one of the reasons why we have had this continual growth in government. So I just wanted to briefly mention that as a bit of a rabbit trail, but it is an important note that the role of the civil government, the role of the civil ruler is to enforce justice according to God's law. Not educate our children, not provide for us, none of those things. Our second point for today is the reason why we need Avengers. Why do we need Avengers of God? Our second and final point. We talked about their role last week and a little bit now. And now we'll talk about the reason for Avengers. The Reformed In the Reformed tradition, we speak of the three uses of the law of God. Okay? One of the uses is to show us our sin. Right? The law is a mirror. It shows us our sin. And this is important as we talked about last week, because all people must obey God's law. So if we abandon the fact that the civil ruler must follow God's law, then we are no longer using the law as a mirror to show that civil ruler his sin. We can't go to the civil ruler like Jeremiah and say, thus says the Lord, here is how you are to govern. Here is how you are failing. Here's how you're sinning. And this is one of the reasons why you need Christ, because you're not governing according to God's law. Same thing if we approach someone living in a blatant sin in regards to sexual immorality. We say, here is God's law. It's a mirror that shows you you are not following God's standard and you need forgiveness because you've broken his law. So that's one use of the law. It's a mirror that shows us our sin. It's also a guide to holy living. It tells God's children what pleases their heavenly father. This is the second use of the law. So we have a mirror for our sin. We have a guide for holy living. And the third use of the law is what's sometimes referred to as the civil use, is to restrain sin in society. But that only works when God's law is the standard for civil government. Now again, you could have a pagan government that is not honoring Christ, and they could get certain things right. And when they do, we can be thankful that God has used evil for good. But that doesn't mean we then endorse their overall worldview and function. For example, you could have a family where both parents are non-Christians. Now, are they required to repent immediately and govern their home according to God's law? Absolutely. But could God use them in their sin for some good? Of course he can. But that doesn't mean that they are not in sin in all they do as parents because they're not doing it for the glory of God according to his word. We talked about that last week. If we reject, if we ignore what we understand about the depravity of man and the sovereignty of God over every person, whether they are Christian or not, then we'll be very confused when it comes to this idea of whether or not civil rulers should follow God's law. 
So because of the fall, men are prone to sin, which means they are prone to what? Go against God's law. So men are prone to sin against one another. They are prone to violate God's law when it comes to their relationships with one another. And therefore, there is a need for civil rulers to restrain that sin in society. If we didn't have sin, which again is violating God's law, then we wouldn't need civil rulers. Without sin, you'd have no need for a civil ruler. And that's important because it helps us think about this. Because of sin, we need a civil ruler. We need civil government. Now, the third use of the law, the civil use, is perverted and even nullified when God's law is not followed. So when a kidnapper or a murderer or a rapist is not executed, sin is not restrained. Remember what we read in Ecclesiastes 8.11. When the sentence, when the just sentence against the evil deed is not carried out, the heart of men is fully set to do evil. So when sin is not restrained according to God's law, it leads to more sin. So it's very important that when we talk about these concepts of sin and righteousness, this all relates to God's law. Everything relates to God's law. If we don't understand uh, God's law and how it relates to us as individuals and how it relates to the world and society, we're not going to understand these concepts, which is why it's very important to think about. And it's very important to read through. I would I would say read through the confession on the law of God, chapter 19, and wrestle with these topics, because if we approach this haphazardly and we kind of say we believe that God's law and standard applies to all people. But then we say, well, certain nations have different requirements. I believe we're not thinking clearly about the law of God. Now, I want to address one brief objection and then wrap up for today. Now, some people would object and say, you know, you're setting up a straw man. And we've talked about this a little bit. And they would say, look, we believe civil rulers should follow God's moral law. Okay, if we want to say there's a moral law, and even some would argue, well, it's not the Ten Commandments, but it's only what's repeated in the New Testament. But Some would say, okay, well, we're going to say, yeah, civil rulers should follow God's moral law, but not the civil law in the Old Testament. That's what some people will say. And uh, they might even make the case that, well, I'm going to look to the Old Testament and see um, what pagan civil rulers are indicted for. And, and um, I'm going to look at these things and see those things as the standard for rulers today. Okay, um, I understand where you're coming from if that's your objection. But I ask a very important question, and that is this. If the civil rulers are called to carry out God's wrath against those who break his moral law, what are the specifics of that wrath? First of all, what sins can the civil ruler avenge? Can the civil ruler avenge the sin of covetousness? You see, these are questions that must be answered. And I've often found people willing to critique the theonomic position simply because it requires some work to apply God's law, which apply, there's a lot of work involved in applying the New Testament as well, as we mentioned last week. And yet, these people are want to answer the questions regarding the application of their worldview. What can the civil ruler punish for? What are the standards? If there is no specific standard, why not use the Old Testament standard? If those laws were just and righteous, and as we read in Hebrews this morning, every infraction, every uh, crime, every sin received a just punishment, why not use God's standard? Now, I, see we're, I say we're required to, but if we say we're not, my question would be, well, why wouldn't we anyway? So how does the civil ruler know what sins are crimes? Because not all sins in the Old Testament were crimes. 
is theft. And furthermore, uh, what what should the punishments be? But for example, is theft to be punished by the civil ruler? According to God's law, yes. Is covetousness? According to God's law, no. But according to man's standard, it could be yes or no for either or. Furthermore, what should the wrath be? Should the wrath of God against theft be execution? Should the thief be put to death? As we mentioned before, that has happened in society. And if your standard for the civil ruler is simply, well, they can punish evil as they see fit, you have no basis to say that executing thieves is an unjust punishment. You have absolutely no basis to say so. Without the boundaries of God's law, who can say civil rulers might not justly execute a thief? Or justly incarcerate someone for using drugs. You have no standard to say these things. Some people will bring up this argument. They'll say, well, in the New Covenant, grace has abounded. So the punishment should obviously be less than in the Old Testament. But if that were the case, then you'd have to walk back the the statement that a lot of people make is, well, Paul didn't require civil rulers to rule in a certain way. But if now you're going to argue that in the new covenant, because grace, quote unquote, has bounded, now the punishments are less. Now you are making an argument that there is specific standards in the New Testament for civil rulers. Furthermore, if you say that, well, now the punishment should be less, that hints that at the idea that the punishment for theft, for example, in the Old Testament was not just, but harsh. But I think to, to make that argument is very dangerous. In Hebrews, it's very clear that The punishments were just and righteous. And in Deuteronomy 4, it's very clear that the people were to look at these laws and say, what a a wise people who have a God who gives them such just and righteous laws. God's law is not harsh. It is good. It is just. It is righteous. And if we're going to say that civil rulers are free to rule in the way they see fit, again, why wouldn't you then as a Christian appeal to the most wise and righteous laws of God, laws which were to cause even pagan nations to be provoked to jealousy in recognizing their righteousness. I think every attempt to say that civil rulers should not follow the moral law of God and the application of the moral law of God laid out in Scripture, I think all those objections fail because this is the one standard that God has given, his moral law, and he has gone even above and beyond, and told us in Scripture what the punishment should be for infractions of his law in society. The civil ruler, the avenger of God, is tasked with punishing evil, with wielding the sword. The government can come and punish you for breaking God's law. That's a very serious responsibility, and we need to think about what that means. We can't just say, well, yeah, the civil ruler is uh, tasked with punishing evil, therefore you know, they can, they can do what they see fit. God has granted this authority, but it's a delegated authority. Just as the father has authority in the home and the pastor in the church, that doesn't give them authority to do whatever they want. It gives them authority to enforce God's standards in the way that God has ordained they're able to. It's a tremendous responsibility. And again, the reason for this responsibility is because of sin And once we say that, we are immediately bringing to our mind God's law. Because we can't say sin without having an understanding of God's law. Because sin is a transgression of God's law. And so if 
nothing less, I hope that this discussion and uh, this series will help us to think more about the law of God and how it applies to us. Because if we don't understand that, none of this will make sense. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us about the civil ruler. And even today, as we just considered that one word in a sense of, of the sword that you have given, that you have authorized the magistrate to use force to punish evil. As a society, we confess, Lord, we have not thought deeply about your word. Many in this nation who profess to be Christian, even perhaps the majority of the nation professes Christ in a very shallow way, but yet we make this profession as a nation and yet we don't look to your word and take it seriously and consider all the application and the implications of your law, that you are the creator, that all people are forever bound to obey your law, that the gospel in Christ doesn't lessen that, but it gives us the ability to follow your law and it should give Christians boldness to preach repentance and faith. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand on your word to correctly understand your law. And we pray for righteousness and justice to abound in our land. There's, if we read scripture, Lord, we see that the prophets cared so much about your law being followed in the land because when it's abandoned, the heart of man is set to do evil. And we care, we love our neighbor. We, we pray that you would help us to love our neighbors more and care about the application of your law in society. Pray you would help us we pray for revival, a reformation in our day, that once again, the Bible will be applied to all of life as it was uh, in the Reformation, as that began to happen, great change happened. We thank you for that and pray that you would be pleased to bless us with another reformation, a greater reformation. The Bible is now available to all people in the Western civilization, and yet so many ignore it. What a greater reformation it would be if all these people now would follow your word and we would see blessing and the spread of the kingdom our hope is in christ alone not in anything we could do we pray lord that you would bless us and strengthen us for that task in jesus name we pray amen well, let's close by singing a portion of psalm 100 again